Welcome to the Act and Unwind podcast, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening and ask that if you're listening to us on our website at acton.org, navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, because there you're going to find a link to subscribe directly to Acton Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you find fine podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. This week, I'm joined by Sam Gregg. Acton's Director of Research, and Dan Huger, Librarian and Research Associate here at Acton. Today, we'll discuss whether all wars are unjust, and we'll answer our very first listener question. But first, I want to go into the pool, where it is the source of a lot of controversy, um, and generally not good advice for me, because I'm a terrible swimmer. But someone who is not a terrible swimmer is Leah Thomas. And this is a story that many of you have probably already heard about. Leah Thomas just recently uh, performed pretty well at the NCAA Division I National Championships uh, after winning the women's 500-yard freestyle with a time of 4 minutes uh, and 33 sec- 33.24 seconds. Uh, Leah Thomas, this is a source of controversy because Leah Thomas was born William Thomas. Uh, Leah is a transgender swimmer uh, at the University of Pennsylvania. And uh, the source of a lot of the controversy is that initially uh, Leah Thomas had been competing on the men's team before coming out as transgender and transitioning and is now competing on the women's team. Uh, What is interesting here is there's a lot of controversy and a lot of conversation that's happened around this, but I don't want to dive into the raw politics of it because that's not really our scene. Um, What I want to have a bit more of a high-minded conversation about this and about how we've arrived at this situation where something like this is such a source of controversy. To set that up, I want to give you what preceded this Uh, a lot of this incident and how the institutions who are supposed to be responsible here have responded to it. In January, the NCAA announced that when it came to transgender athletes, it would defer to the governing bodies of each and every sport. Three weeks uh, prior to the Ivies, which is the Ivy League championship swimming competition, USA Swimming announced its new guidelines, which are pretty extensive. For example... A trans woman now has to have her testosterone tested and clear the five nanomoles per liter threshold for 36 months. This apparently caught the NCAA by surprise, prompting the organization to double back and announce that it would be unfair to transgender swimmers to implement the new USA Swimming Guidelines this late in the game. If those had been implemented, uh, that 36-month threshold, uh, Leah Thomas would have been only at 34 and would have been unable to compete in the NCAA championships as well as the Ivy championships. So, Sam, I will go first to you. Uh, I imagine, and, and this is a point that uh, we raised in our conversation about this prior to doing the show today. I imagine the NCAA, I imagine that USA Swimming has probably never thought they'd need to answer the question of, what is the human person? 
And nonetheless, they find themselves in this position now where they're attempting to answer that. And they, if you will pardon the expression, seem to be flailing about in the pool. Yes, indeed. This is uh, a reflection, what we're seeing across society when it comes to many of these very similar questions, whether it's sports, uh, whether it's uh, changing rooms, bathrooms, all these sorts of things, even the way that um, civil rights law is now being construed and understood. It does, of course, reflect deep conflict, which is not a new conflict in some respects, but deep conflict about the essence of human identity. Who is a human person? And as listeners on this show will know, the Acton Institute takes that question, who is the human person, quid sit homo, quid est homo, we take this very, very seriously because that's the question you have to ask before you start to ask questions like, <clears throat> what's the most optimal form of an economy? What, are, what is the role of government? What are the proper limits of government? What is the nature of marriage? What is the relate nature of civil institutions? What is the nature of law? All these things at some level reflect answers to this question of who is a human person? So we, in fact, at Acton University, this is one of our core lectures. We talk about this all the time. But it's also not a new debate because I think that this question of human identity, what constitutes human identity, <clears throat> goes back centuries. This is an argument that's gone on for a very long period of time. So let me give you a very quick example. Uh, the French philosopher René Descartes, very famous. So he's a, a 16th century philosopher, 16th, 17th century philosopher, I can't remember. But <clears throat> he, he's famous for saying, um, I think, therefore I am. Now, to some people that's, well, of course, we think, therefore that's who we are. But of course, the when you think about that, to excuse the irony, excuse the pun, when you think about that, you realize that that locates human identity in human consciousness, in the human mind. But we know that human identity is more than just the human mind. It also includes our physicality, if you like, uh, we talk about the human person at Acton as being this seamless integration of uh, the, the mind and the body, always together and never apart. You can't artificially separate these things out. But if you say, I think therefore I am, and you identify human identity with human consciousness, with simply the human mind – then you detach human identity from things like our physicality. Now, phys human physicality is a reality. I don't see how you can get away from that when you're trying to understand what a human person is. So I think what we've seen uh, over, well, for a long time now, is this deep debate about what constitutes the essence of human identity. Now, I happen to think that the idea of the soul the soul, which is a way of expressing this dynamic integration and unity of mind and body, of intellect and physicality, is the most accurate understanding of where 
what constitutes a human being and what makes us different in so many other respects from every other species that exists in the world today. So when you think about it from that standpoint, these debates that we see breaking out across the sp political spectrum, and it's interesting, I think it's some of these things don't necessarily fall down a conservative progressive line because I've seen people on both progressives and conservatives taking quite different positions on some of these issues than you might otherwise imagine they would take. But I think it does reflect this deeper philosophical division that has permeated certainly Western societies for a very long period of time. And if you're trying to answer these questions, such as the ones that the uh, America's Swimming Federation is now grappling with, it's very hard to see how you can't get away from those deeper philosophical questions. And Eric, you pointed to earlier some of the problems with doing that. Um, these, are, these are, I think Sam is absolutely right. These are, these are philosophical and anthropological questions. Um, and we have long had, you know, a struggle as a civilization, a long-going erosion of understanding of those traditional categories. Um, I was reading an old essay by Richard Rorty in Descent magazine in which he was talking about modernism and a lot of sort of the way that these questions of identity start being cast along this sort of crisis of identity starts being cast along specifically, you know, questions of gender and sexuality. And Rorty states that, you know, Virginia Woolf's claim that around December 1910, human nature changed now strikes me as ludicrous. The most that changed was the sexual behavior of some of Woolf's friends and relations. The nature persists there. Now, there are very difficult questions that the NCAA is going to have to wrestle with. And one of the one of the pitfalls that it can fall into is reducing this to a strictly sort of trying to, to do it as a strictly biological category, um, to, to a strictly physical category. And you see this in track and field. Um, you see, you know, there were uh, a number of years ago two Namibian women who tested above that identical testosterone threshold that you pointed out and were disqualified. Um, I think, I think, I think re reducing it merely to hormone levels, merely to these sorts of things, is a dodge. Um, and it also means that you put these athletes, some of whom are naturally born women, in a position where they have to undergo hormone therapy in order to compete as they are in the world. So there is, there is, there is no way in which these bare sort of assessments of the physicality of the person can somehow work around these issues. It also seems to me so incredibly emblematic of our times, uh, not just the example that I gave there of how you have the NCAA trying to pass the buck to USA Swimming and then USA Swimming saying, OK, well, this is what we came up with. And the NCAA, basically the reaction being, well, that's not what we wanted. Um, so now we have to step in and do something entirely different. Nobody wants to take responsibility for thinking these things through and answering these questions. But Dan, and what you said as well, 
I think it's emblematic of our times because you see this other attempt, I think, to pass the buck, to appeal to an authority. And the authority in this case is the science, capital T, capital S. And to say that we're going to establish you know, this line and this is the line that it has to be above or below. Look, in a lot of these things, line drawing is inevitable, right? And there's always, when you look exactly where the line falls, you're always going to find examples that make it seem ridiculous. The idea that the day before my 21st birthday, I'm incapable of handling having an alcoholic drink, and magically the next day I'm capable of handling it, is ludicrous. But you have to draw the line somewhere. But... In this case, it seems like an absolute attempt to avoid thinking about anything that Sam articulated, to avoid thinking about anything, Dan, that you articulated, um, and to come up with a almost cold, impartial, capital T, capital S, the science standard that we're just going to say, that's what we appeal to, and anything on the other side of it is, is you know, anything that qualifies as good and anything that doesn't qualify as bad. And even in this sense, I think they're laying this trap where, you know, I, I, I may have mentioned this on the show before, but um, one of my favorite books of the last five or six years um, was by the writer Chuck Klosterman called But What If We're Wrong? And the whole conceit of the book is we look at people who lived five, six hundred years ago who thought that the sun revolved around the earth. And the average person's reaction to that is, oh, you know, what idiots, what rubes, how could they possibly believe that? Because we now know and it has been scientifically demonstrated that, oh, actually, the earth revolves around the sun. There are inevitably things that we believe right now in the year 2022 that 500 years beyond, people will think back and think the same of us for having believed those things at the time. Um, And... Not understanding, I think, this capital T, capitalist science that we're often pointing to, how easily that it is proved to be, if not wrong, at least a very poor way of trying to understand and adjudicate these things. Um, It avoids having to think deeply about it in the way that Sam laid out and that you have laid out. And as a result, I think it lays this kind of trap that we're inevitably going to fall into in trying to answer these questions. Can I add something to that, uh, Eric? And that is the observation that it's very difficult to have the type of conversation that you're talking about today precisely because if, for example, you say, well, no, I, I don't accept that women can be men and men can be women. If you say that today, in many circles, you are labeled something phobic, right? So there's an immediate attempt to shut down the conversation before it even begins. I mean, the most extreme example of this was the banning, quote-unquote, the banning of Ryan Anderson's book um, When Harry Became Sally, which anyone who's read it will, will understand that it represents a very careful philosophical argument about this particular subject that's done with sensitivity and concern for those people uh, who are in this position, find themselves in this position for whatever particular reason. Uh, But, and he comes to certain conclusions about what he describes as the ideology that's driving a lot of this. 
And the response of some people to that is to say that this is simply forbidden. We may not talk about these sorts of things, which strikes me as a highly defensive reaction and an unwillingness to debate things that clearly need to be sorted out at a philosophical level. So, I mean, this, this is the part of the atmosphere we're dealing with. I mean, so, for example, some of these female athletes who are saying things like, this is, there's something fundamentally wrong with this situation, are now being ridiculed on Twitter, they're being told they're transphobic, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a real, in, uh, there's a real problem right now <clears throat> with having some of these discussions in a way that's philosophically informed, in which all the evidence is considered, and which people are free to present what they believe to be the truth about human identity. The fact that someone's expression of what they believe human identity to be may differ from other people, or even upset some people, is not a reason to shut down the conversation. And that, is, I think, is the sort of the broader picture, the broader problem that we're dealing with, that some views are now considered to be simply verbatim. Yeah. And when you there's also an obligation of the folks that want to have these conversations to be sensitive in having them and realizing that we live now in a culture that is deeply confused and has been for, you know, if we want to take it back to where Sam does to Descartes, there are some that would take it back further. We are in this situation as a result of a deep confusion that affects all of us in this society in various ways. And our way forward through this is to be sensitive in dialogue and in encounter with folks who are struggling through these issues. And it is also incumbent upon ourselves, you know, we, we tend to think, you know, we have this right or we have this all figured out. But if it has gotten to this point, if it has gotten to the point where the NCAA cannot answer these questions, when part of it, you know, when you have women's athletics, it's very essential <laughs> to the purpose of the thing itself, um, to the rationale of the things it's, itself, that you think through these things. And this is a call for all of us to deeper examine and explore and ground ourselves in the natural law reasoning tradition about just what the human person is, what gender, what sexuality are. Um, and, this is, and this is a searching that has to happen throughout society. And it's not a case of this is, you know, of this is one particular individual or one particular class of individuals that are somehow responsible for this crisis. This is a crisis in which we all share responsibility. You know, as Sam said, and, and as you have echoed, Dan, it is a huge problem that I think there are people very much of good faith who are confused by or are struggling with the questions that are raised by, you know, and, and in a way, I, I think you do have to feel sympathy for Leah Thomas, who probably does not desire to be the locus of this conversation, but nonetheless 
here we are having this conversation around this one individual. But because this one individual points to much bigger questions that, as you point out, we're confused about and struggling with, you know, it becomes the subject. It's the subject that we've basing this conversation off today. Um, <clears throat> people who recognize that there's at least questions that need to be asked here, that there are things that don't seem right. Um, the fact that Leah Thomas, as a swimmer on the men's team at the University of Pennsylvania uh, in the 200 freestyle, ranked 554th in the country and in the women's ranks first. I think there's something there that a reasonable person will look at and say, okay, well, that's an incredible improvement. What is the reason for that? Is it just because somebody who has gone through male puberty is now swimming against women who have never done that? Um, I, uh, I was reading a piece over the weekend in commentary from John Podhoritz uh, entitled Neoconservatism, a Vindication. And John's argument is a foreign policy argument. Um, and he's seeking to have vindicated through his argument here the foreign policy neoconservatism that Commentary Magazine is uh, is most known for. But as I look around, I see um, a more of a vindication of the public interest variety, uh, more domestic neoconservatism, at least as described by Irving Kristol, who defined a neoconservative as a liberal who has been mugged by reality. If you read, and we'll put these in the show notes, there are two very interesting pieces, uh, one in Common Sense, which is Barry Weiss's publication uh, by Barry Weiss's sister, Susie Weiss, entitled Watching Leah Thomas Win. And the other is a Sports Illustrated profile of Leah Thomas uh, by a gentleman named Robert Sanchez. What you will find in there are all these people who do not want to be named – do not want to ha be identified uh, many in, in many cases, especially in the Common Sense article. They are parents of other swimmers, either in the Ivy Leagues or are teammates of Leah Thomas who do not want who their child is to be identified, who are always offer up very similar comments that, you know, I'm a liberal. I'm a progressive. You know, I am an ally of transgender people, but something doesn't seem right here. And on one hand, um, I think back to that Irving Crystal definition of, you know, these are people who have uh, accepted an ideology and an orthodoxy who are now having reality uh, mug them of that and they're processing that in real time. But also, to Sam's point about the inability to have these as public conversations because there is that fear that there will be some form of reprisal, some form of retribution, that it will not be tolerated, that they will pay a public cost for doing what we are supposed to do in a society like ours, which is work through these problems publicly and in conversation and dialogue with each other. And that it's not happening is one of the reasons why this confusion is not getting sorted out and is only becoming a bigger and bigger issue over time. Let's move on to our next topic, which uh, Sam had flagged for us, which were comments uh, made by Pope Francis uh, a couple days ago. Uh, and there's a good explainer here from uh, the pillar that we'll include in the show notes as well. Um, but this started with a statement from the Holy See Press Office uh, Wednesday of last week where the Vatican confirmed that Pope Francis had spoken with uh, Patriarch Kirill of Moscow, uh, who was previously um, 
appeared to lend support to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And in this communication, uh, he had been quoted to say that wars are always unjust. Um, so I, I want to start very basic with this conversation because it would be helpful for me as well as probably our listeners. And I'll go to you first, Sam. Um, can you explain the church's view on just or unjust war? Well, just war theory, as it's called, is something that has been around for quite a long time. We see intimations of it in the writings of St. Augustine, because Augustine is, of course, dealing with a world in which war is endemic. He's very aware of what Christianity has to say about love of neighbor, and he's trying to work out the implications of that in the context of a time in which war was simply seen as just another activity that uh, had no real uh, no real sense about it in the way that we think about war today. This tradition of thinking about what constitutes uh, justice in terms of making a decision to go to war, but then also how war is waged, it's worked out further in the writings of people like Thomas Aquinas, and it also receives pretty extensive development in the thought of uh, Catholic scholastic thinkers as well as Protestant scholastic thinkers from the uh, 16th century onwards. And it's not just a religious thing, by the way, because it's been very much worked out in a natural in the natural law tradition. And I find it interesting that whenever questions of war come up, almost everyone seems to revert to some version of just war theory when it comes to thinking about whether a war is just or not and how the the waging of that war is conducted, whether it meets the criteria that's considered uh, just, so to speak. So when it comes to... um, uh, the Catholic Church's position on just war. The catechism of the Catholic Church is pretty clear about this. So let me just give you some of the criteria. So first of all, the cause must be just. In other words, you can't go to war because you just want to expand territory. It's really about assessing whether the cause is just. And the most obvious type of just cause is self-defense. Secondly, a war has to be declared by a legitimate authority. We don't have private entities deciding to go to war. By legitimate authority, we mean a sovereign state headed by a legitimate government. Now, some people would say, well, really, in the end, it comes down to what the United Nations thinks about that. I'm not sure about that, but it has to be declared by a legitimate authority. The decision to go to war has to embody what's called right intention. In other words, the object that's intended by the government going to war is justice, not, for instance, vengeance. Another condition is there has to be some reasonable probability of realizing the goal. In other words, you just can't you can't go to war. Uh, (laughs) fully knowing that you're not going to realize your goal. And I think that's that's a very important criteria when it comes to thinking about whether a war is just or not. And lastly, all other means of trying to resolve the problem uh, must have been used and they must have failed. So some people talk about this in terms of uh, war has to be a type of last resort. 
Well, I think the idea of all other means of trying to address the problem must have been used and failed, I think that's a better way of describing what we're talking about here. So when you think about all that, all those criteria, what it makes you realize is that uh, going to war and meeting the, the criteria for what constitutes a just war, uh, according to, for example, to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which tracks very closely uh, what you might call natural, broad natural law thinking about war, just war, and unjust war, as it, as that as that natural law tradition has developed over time, it makes it pretty clear that going to war is a, a, there's a very very high threshold. But it doesn't mean that that's that's very different to saying that all wars are unjust. That's not clear to me at all. It's not clear to me that a, that going to war to defend yourself is unjust. It's not clear to me that the Allies' war against Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, and militaristic Japan, it's not self-evident to me that that was an unjust war. It's not evident to me that the Allies' aggressive invasion on D-Day of Normandy was an unjust act. So, so I think the, the good thing about just, just war theory is it really does give you very clear principles for thinking about whether going to war, the decision to go to war is just or not. It also provides us with uh, uh, principles for thinking about how that war is waged. So one of, the, one of the criteria in that regard is what's called the principle of discrimination, which means you only get to act against those who are legitimate targets. So military bases, soldiers who are plainly intent on fighting, uh, key communication facilities that are needed to wage war, etc. So that means, of course, that civilians and non-combatants cannot be intentionally targeted. Now, in war, it's inevitable that civilians and non-combatants get hurt as a side effect. But what matters is whether they're intentionally targeted and defining what falls within the scope of intentionality is another question that has to be addressed. A second principle is what's called proportionality. You can only deploy sufficient force that's judged necessary to realize the goal. So it's not just about minimizing destruction and casualty. It's also about acting justly by not acting out of all proportion to the problem that you're trying to address. So, for example, the type of weapons you use should not be facilitating more evils than the evil that the war seeks to eliminate. So I think just war theory, both in, both in terms of the decision to go to war and how to go to war, I think it provides a pretty robust and principled way of thinking through these things. And this has been broadly reflected in the natural law tradition, which I think where it's most extensively developed, but also in the, the official teaching of not just the Catholic Church, but a number of um, churches on this particular question. When I first read, and Sam gave an excellent and thorough explanation of the categories we should be thinking through as we think through this just war tradition and, and any particular instances of conflict in the world, one of the things when I read Pope Francis's remarks that I thought of is um, I wondered if his thought was not analogous to how he thinks through the issue of capital punishment. 
And one of the ways that <clears throat> he thought through this and one of the ways that Pope John Paul II thought through this was that um, given our current historical circumstances, given the ways that wars are waged today, is it possible to satisfy that criteria? And I think Pope Francis is very skeptical of that. Um, Pope Francis is not always not always as nuanced as we would like, but I think I think the charitable reading of of what he's saying is is not is not to throw out that just war tradition, but to tell us something about how he sees the current context of how war is waged, and uh, there's a there's a tradition in in, in some aspects of uh, in some modern Catholic social thinkers that make a similar argument that the nature of war is. Uh, is somehow more totalizing in the modern world, and 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 that threshold of a just war is uh, very difficult, if not impossible, to reach. I think that John Paul II and Benedict XVI, uh, what you just described, uh, Dan, is uh, that what you just described is pretty similar to the way that they approached this particular issue. Uh, I think Pope Francis's way of talking about this is less clear, frankly, more muddled, not as coherent, in, at least in the way it's publicly expressed. But if you read the way that John Paul II talked about war and uh, – I mean he certainly didn't rule out. He didn't say just war theory is redundant. He didn't say – neither did Benedict XVI. Um, uh, there are – both men, of course – grew up in the middle of the Second World War where we saw war waged on this totalizing scale with such uh, ferocity and with such extent uh, that in many respects was unprecedented in history. So they were very aware of the reality of what this looks like and the experience of what this means. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, uh, Benedict XVI um, uh when he went to London, for example, he praised the British people for resisting National Socialist Germany. And he made it pretty clear that the military defeat of Nazi Germany in the Second World War was a good thing. So I, th I think this is, Dan's exactly right. The just war theory and the way that it's articulated and the way that churches talk about these issues they do take into account the fact that the way that war is waged today is quite different in certain respects from the way it was waged 200 years ago, 300 years ago, or 400 years ago, particularly when it comes to the type of weapons that are used and the degree of destruction that they can inflict. And I think that's a very important consideration when we're thinking through these particular um, issues. At the same time, I do think that just war theory, both in terms of the whether you go to war, but also how you wage war, provides a far more robust framework for thinking about these issues than anything else that is on offer today. And I find it interesting, by the way, that people who have no particular interest in Christianity or religion in general, no particular sympathy or interest in natural law theory, I find it remarkable that so many of them revert immediately to some version of just war theory when they're talking about the justice of war or of a given war or otherwise. I, I think that's 
what what's true in what you said there, Sam, is that um, how conveniently some people will pick up and then later discard arguments that are helpful to them at the time without a full or deep understanding of the argument that they're actually deploying, uh, which is a shame. But nonetheless, you know, you it gives you the opportunity to point out when they're going to evoke a framework like just war theory to get them to uh, you know kind of continue to to dilate on that for a little while and hopefully think it through a little more. I, I want to give the fuller context of Pope Francis's remarks. Uh, here from that video conference, uh, there was a time, even in our churches, when people spoke of a holy war or a just war. Today, we cannot speak in this manner. A Christian awareness of the importance of peace has developed. Wars are always unjust, since it is the people of God who pay. Our hearts cannot but weep for the children and women killed, along with the victims of war. War is never the way. The spirit that unites us asks us uh, as shepherds to help the peoples who suffer from war. And I think kind of pointing to what Sam was saying earlier, um, that sometimes uh, Pope Francis seems to lack some clarity in what he's saying. This strikes me as a very hallmark card kind of explanation of the problems of war. Is that like, yeah, war is terrible and war is tra- a tragedy. Um, but you know, the, as, as some of the examples that have already been pointed out, um, you know, resisting um, the advances of Nazi Germany and uh, Japan in the Second World War clearly seemed to be just. One of the things that also stuck out from Sam's uh, very excellent explication of the just war framework now, obviously, going to war in self-defense, as Ukraine is here with regard to Russia, seems very obvious. But something else that stuck out to me is our own fallibility in, in the ability to discern these things. Um, you know, the likelihood that you're going to be successful is what struck out to me. Because what what is remarkable about what is going on right now is if you rewind a month, you would have gotten almost unanimous agreement that the Ukrainians just really did not stand a chance. I mean, you had people thinking that this was going to take a matter of days, um, if not maybe a week, for Putin to accomplish his goals there. And it is more than three weeks later, and we're still having this conversation. Uh, There are reports... That and these again are differing. So the, um, the 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 number claimed by the Ukrainians of how many Russian soldiers have been killed is upwards of fifteen thousand, which is almost certainly too high. The number claimed by the Russians um, is less than a thousand, which is almost certainly way too low. The Pentagon's estimate is somewhere around seven thousand, and that number should be staggering. Again, in the sense of set set aside a lot of the moral concern stuff that Pope Francis is talking about here. Not that that's not without meaning, but just from an analytical point of view. 7,000 is more than the United States and its allies lost in Iraq and Afghanistan in 20 years. Um, The ability of the Ukrainians to be effective in their own self-defense is something that probably, if we're being honest with ourselves, only Zelensky and the Ukrainians believed at the onset of this. And it just it sticks out to me so glaringly how the entire world seemingly would have advocated that you know Ukraine should find a way immediately to sue for peace because there's just not a chance that they're going to be able to hold off the Russians. And yet here they are. Yet here we are more than three weeks later, and they're continuing to hold them off. 
And it has changed, I think, the calculus because now to get in some of the more things that Sam said about the weapon reuse, we now have seen hypersonic missiles deployed. There have been continuing concerns about whether Vladimir Putin will use tactical nuclear weapons. Of course, one of the big threats in all of this is uh, and, and the reason why we're thinking about this conflict differently than we've thought about a lot of other conflicts is because Putin and Russia have nuclear weapons. Um, I, I think it, it does speak to the usefulness of this framework, but also to me, it just highlights how wrong we could be in some of those assessments that we never thought the Ukrainians could hold up as long as they did. And yet again, here we are. Well, here's something to think about, Eric, which I think is um, really plays into what you just said. Applying these principles that we've talked about requires a high degree of the virtue of prudence, right? So by prudence, I don't mean pragmatism, realpolitik, or shrewdness or cautiousness. Rather, I mean it's the virtue of using our reason, a reason to apply these principles, to identify what the good is to be realized, what's the just end, and what are the just means of realizing these types of goods. And what's interesting about things like war, and you've alluded to this, is that it's quite conceivable that prudent people can come to quite different conclusions about some of these questions. It's not a matter of indulging moral relativism. Rather, it reflects the fact that answering some of the issues that you just raised involves making judgments about facts, and facts change, and probabilities, probabilities are only estimations, that are reasonably in dispute among reasonable people. So it's quite possible for people to come to quite different conclusions about whether or not a war is just and not be in the position of effectively indulging a type of moral relativism. Now, just war theory, one of the beauties of it, I think, is it makes it provides space. It provides space and it acknowledges these realities of different facts and different degrees of probability that are reasonably in dispute among reasonable people. Another thing to keep in mind is that, you know, the whole thing about, I mentioned before, that the war has to be declared by or decided upon. The decision to go to war must be decided by a legitimate authority. And that's the legitimate political authority. The Catholic Church, his catechism makes it very clear that the responsibility, the choice of whether to go to war is ultimately the choice of the political authorities. It is not the decision of ecclesiastical authorities. Now, I don't imagine that many religious leaders today would leap immediately to say, yes, this war is just, et cetera, et cetera. Although in the case of Ukraine, it's very clear that the churches there in Ukraine have made it very clear they do believe this is a just war because they are defending themselves. But in many respects, the, the role of the church is different from that of the state in these sorts of circumstances. I think it's the role of the church is to remind us that even in the conditions of war, moral absolutes still apply, that we are still obliged to behave with charity and mercy, even to those people who we are fighting against. So there's a clear division of responsibilities here, which I think is very important when we're thinking about who gets to do what in these types of conditions. And this is one of those things, I think, Eric, the, the, the probability of success here is a, is a great way to think through this and, and, and some of the ways in which a lot of this is dependent on prudential judgments. There are two other things that are striking about <clears throat> this war is we have all sorts of nations who are not at war with Russia who have unleashed the sort of economic sanctions that we haven't really seen um, before. Typically, blockades are considered 
an act of war historically, this restriction of trade. So there is, there is, there is that that's going on. And there's a way and a lot of that is indiscriminate. And there is a way that many Western leaders are sort of by design that the aim is to destabilize the Russian regime in addition to compromising its ability to wage war. Um, and I think that's something that it's, it's, it's worth thinking through um, how indiscriminate sanctions should be because these do affect, you know, innocent parties. And we tend to make those distinctions with the use of, of, of physical force in violence, but we tend to be much less subtle in making those distinctions when it comes to, you know, uh, the economic means of doing this, which can deprive people of goods necessary for medical care, for survival, um, can make life just as hard for people as the destruction of buildings can. There's also the interesting question of legitimate actors because now we have Visa Corporation. We have McDonald's. We have other firms that have decided – we have Burger King has decided to stay. McDonald's is at total war. Um, and I this – is, this is the first time in my memory that I can see this happening on such a scale – and I wonder about its consequences for the stability of the international order in the future. If corporations can act apart from governments to affect foreign policy goals, um, be they for good or for ill, um, it strikes me as, as there's, there's wisdom in the natural law tradition of just war theory in giving that authority to public authorities, universally recognized as such. One of the lines that stuck out in Pope Francis's comments that I, I think is, we would probably agree, I won't endeavor to speak for both of you, but and if you, you feel free to reject my characterization if you wish, that uh, sometimes Pope Francis seems to be a, a little bit clumsy in the way that he phrases things, particularly, uh, particularly when speaking about uh, issues of economics. Uh, we've certainly opined on that here at the Acton Institute on numerous occasions. Um, and, and the reason why I characterized it as this kind of Hallmark card-like sentiment about war, um, the, the line that sticks out to me is war is never the way, which just strikes me as being transparently untrue. It's like this cliche that you hear all the time that violence never solves anything. Um, uh, violence is actually good for solving violent problems. Um, you know, I, I, I think it was from Jonah Goldberg who got this uh, this line of it's like the idea that there's you know a police officer sees you know some kind of violent interaction going down and he pulls out his handgun and looks at it and says this thing is useless. Um, the suggestion that is uh, on offer there that war is never the way just seems to be clearly false. But I, I think if I can squint at it in the right way, I can get what Pope Francis is trying to say here, which is to talk about the uh, what preceded that as being the point he's driving at. Our hearts cannot but weep for the children and women killed along with the victims of war. I think you can hold these positions together 
in tandem, that we can look at the consequences of war and we can bemoan all of that, that we can think that it is terrible and awful that somebody, you know, has perpetrated this kind of violence on a mass scale um, or to get into another perhaps uh, thorny issue in the uh, you know, framework of just war that Sam explicated, um, whether or not it was justified to drop the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, whether that was proportionate, whether that was the only possible way of of resolving or avoiding the argument for that would be is uh, dropping those bombs, avoided having to engage in a manned invasion of the Japanese mainland, which may have ended up with a lot more people dead and a war that went on even longer than uh, World War II had gone on to up at that point. These are difficult things to suss out. These are conversations, going back to our previous discussion, um, these are debates and conversations we need to have with each other because prudently speaking, the answers are not always transparently obvious. And I, again, I point to the ability of the Ukrainians to defend themselves, which almost no one would have believed a month ago. And yet they continue to hold Russia off. Or we can look at it the other way as well, that we didn't underestimate the Ukrainians. We massively overestimated Russia's power and superiority here. Now, we should stipulate that there are a lot of more drastic actions that Vladimir Putin could choose to engage in and he has not done yet. Uh, but at least at this point, you have to start wondering if this military that we had feared – uh, many, at least many people had feared, was not gravely overestimated. We should take these things into consideration in these conversations. I want to move on now to our final topic, which is last week I asked you for uh, questions, um, ideally left in the form of five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts, but you can also email them to unwind at acton.org. And we have our first listener question that also comes with some uh, very lovely compliments, which I assume are primarily directed at the two of you and less so at me, um, as I've been fumbling a bit over my words today. Uh, this is from Ben, who says, Hi, thanks for producing the show. I really enjoy the quality of the discussion that happens each week. The last decade has seemed to recalibrate the average American to pay more attention to politics and economics, but unfortunately, the voices yelling the loudest about those topics are often the most intellectually lacking or dishonest. As a comparison, I always feel like listening to Act and Unwind makes me a little smarter and a better thinker than I was the week before. Uh, not sure if this is a question that could be answered in a single episode. Newsflash, it is, and we will. Or if it's something you like to uh, do just host one host at a time. But I would like to know the following from each contributor to the show. If you were planning a 100, 200, and 300 level college course about, quote, what shapes, host name, so Dan Huger, Sam Gregg, Eric Cohn, view of politics and economics uh, what would an example of a book from each class's required reading list be and why? There might be a more straightforward way to ask that, but the main sentiment being that many intellectuals recommend books that have shaped their views. However, rarely are those recommendations categorized in a way that gives you a clean starting point and a way to ramp up in the complexity of the content. I want to know what books I should read, but more importantly, I want to know what order to read them to build on the ideas properly. Keep up the great work. I look forward to each new episode. Well, thank you for the incredibly kind email, Ben. I am going to start with you, uh, Sam Gregg. If you were planning a 100, 200, and 300 level college course about what shapes Sam Gregg's view of politics and economics, 
What's a book for each level and why? <laughs> well, I would start with uh, first level would be the treatise on law in Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologiae. I say that because I think that Thomas Aquinas is maybe the greatest thinker that ever walked the face of the earth, <laughs> which is no small praise. Uh, but I also think that that treatise spells out uh, very well the nature of law, the nature of politics, the nature of government, and the proper ends of these things. And it also shapes and fleshes out to a certain degree how these things play out with regard to uh, the way we think about social questions, the way we think about legal questions, the way we think at some level about economic questions. Now, it's not, a, it's not an economics book. It's a philosophical book that's couched in terms of a broader, deeper theological background. But it is, I think, a, a very profound and important starting point for thinking through the type of questions that the person has posed. The second book I would read, which is, um, uh, again, this is my own bias and prejudice, uh, is John Finnis's 1980 book, uh, Natural Law and Natural Rights, which I think, again, does something very similar to what Aquinas's work, Treatise on Law, does, but in a way that's cognizant of the intervening, well, I guess 700 years of developments uh, in natural law thinking about these types of questions. It's a very difficult read, but I think it gives pretty comprehensive answers to problems of political order, problems of social order, problems of legal order, and again, to a certain extent, how to think in a principled way about some economic questions. The third book I would read uh, is a book I urge lots of people to read at, at some point in their life, uh, is Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. And I say this in terms of, in the context of what's been read before. So in, in light of the previous two books, I think it's very useful to read Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations because this is when we see the decisive term turn towards economics as a social science. Most of the basic insights there into, as into, into the nature of economic life that are expressed in Smith's Wealth of Nations are really the same insights that are underlying most contemporary economics today. There's some differences. Smith didn't get everything right, but he got most things right. And he, the way of economic thinking that he outlines there, I think, is extremely helpful for understanding some important human realities. There are aspects of Smith's broader thought that I would take issue with, but I think his Wealth of Nations as a whole is really uh, a very good way of getting one's mind around the basic principles and insights of economics. And the previous two works give you the philosophical, political, and legal context within which to situate this economic way of thinking. If you were planning a 100, 200, and 300 level course about what shapes Dan Huger's view of politics slash economics, what are the books, Dan? Mine are all going to be considerably easier than Sam's. And this is I'm delighted to do because I'm a, I'm a simple man. And uh, as a simple man, I think the great way to sort of get into a very sophisticated way of understanding the way that 
society, relates to the economy, relates to the church, is John Paul II Centesimus Annis. That's where I would begin with that, articul- that particular articulation of the social teaching, reflecting back on the first hundred years of the church's social teaching. The second <clears throat> would be an anthology I edited um, called The Humane Economist, which is a selection of Wilhelm Röpke's writings. The first section of that gives you a very um, clear but sophisticated understanding of sort of the basic principles of microeconomics, some of the history and some appendixes there. Then it gives you um, some later thinking on how to think about economic theory and some macroeconomic questions, and then also questions of human values and the contribution particularly to Christianity to those values. And um, I think I think that's a great uh, place to start in a way thinking through both economics and how that relates to value in a more detailed way than, than what happens in Centesimus Annis. Lastly, Lord Acton. And Lord Acton was not a book guy. He was an essay guy. He was a review guy. Um, I edited another uh, uh, anthology of Lord Acton's writings called uh, Lord Acton, uh, historical and moral essays. In there, there's there's sort of two goals. One is to sort of present a history of the world according to Acton. Um, he had this lifelong project of the history of liberty. He never completed that, but there are bits and pieces of it everywhere, and it can it can get you up to you know Napoleon um, in at least broad outlines. Um, and that shows how some of these ideas in terms of human freedom, human anthropology, work out their way through history. And then uh, it, it presents um, sort of uh, the moral foundation of that sort of broader liberal tradition. And Acton is somebody that I've, I'm, I'm constantly mining for new ideas, um, for new perspectives – and uh, he's just such a rich writer and uh, is, uh, is particularly in the, in the context of a course, he'd be a lot of fun because a lot of these are shorter pieces that work well together but are also uh, stand well on their own. Uh, I think that in the different answers that Sam and now Dan and now I will give that Ben is going to get uh, some interesting and diverse reading options. So the three that I would pick, uh, the 100 level is uh, Bastiat's The Law. And I pick that uh, very selfishly because that was one of the first things that I was given to start understanding you know, these uh, ideas, as, as Bastiat says, and that each of us has a natural right from God to defend his person, his liberty, and his property. Um, and it's a very short read. Um, you can get through it in one sitting uh, without any problem. And I think you really do get an understanding of of uh, the ideas of economics, of law, of justice, um, very well communicated through that work. The 
Second, and I struggle with um, these next choices, which is the 200 and which is the 300 level, so I will just throw them all out there at the same time. Um, The next is one that I just actually recently read, but it is remarkable how, despite the fact that it was written in the 1950s, how much it reads like a book that could be published today, and that is uh, Robert Nisbet's Quest for Community. Um, An absolutely incredible book to get to the understanding of how we as social creatures have a desire, and we've, there's various forms of books about this out there today, um, that we have this tribal instinct, that we have this desire to be uh, in small groups, and there's hierarchies within small groups. Uh, Robert Nisbet's The Quest for Community will give you an incredible understanding of that as he lays out what he saw as these social problems that existed, again, in the 1950s in post-World War II America. And what is also heartening to me about that book is as we, you know, as you think back over those decades, uh, the parts of them that you lived in, the parts of them that you've only read about, that these problems we're struggling with today are not new problems. They are problems that have been going on for a very long time and probably throughout all human history as we attempt to grapple with some of what we've talked about in the show today. Our human nature, uh, our anthropology, um, and our – especially where that human nature wants to guide us. So uh, I highly recommend uh, Quest for Community. And the second, I'm going to impart steel from Stam, but I'm going to add a condition along with it in that I also agree that – We should recommend Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, but you should read it in conjunction with Adam Smith's Theory of Moral Sentiments, because to me, those two books do go together, that you need that moral understanding to inform, you know, this great treatise on economics that really creates the modern field of economics as a social science. And I don't think you can separate out, as so many people, I think, want to do for various different motivations and kind of forget about Theory of Moral Sentiments, how that book came before and how it informed uh, and really explained Smith's view of the world as a necessary, uh, I think, bit of required reading to go along with Wealth of Nations. So with that, uh, Ben, hope you have some good reading suggestions that will keep you busy for a while. And thanks so much for the question. want to let you know that you also can have your question answered on this program by going to Apple Podcasts and leaving us a five-star review with your question or by emailing it to unwind at acton.org. That's where we'll call it a wrap for today. I want to thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. Again, if you're listening to this podcast on our website, navigate right now to the show notes where you will find a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind, or you can just search Act and Unwind in your favorite podcast app. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, ideally with your question being left for us there, so that more people can find this show. Thanks to Sam. Thanks to Dan for the Acton Institute. This is Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week. Uh, Leah Thomas uh, just recently cleaned up at uh, or did. Uh, very well won one um uh here's your flub